G'day, welcome to Age Abuse and Justice, where each episode I summarise an elder abuse case to demonstrate what elder abuse looks like and how the law deals with it. My name is Tanya Chapman and I'm a solicitor with the Elder Abuse Service at Legal Aid. In previous episodes I've done in video format on our YouTube channel also called Age Abuse and Justice, I've mentioned the presumption of advancement. In this case, I'm going to go into it in a bit more detail because I think this case demonstrates really well how unfair and frustrating the presumption of advancement can be. First off, I should come clean and just let you know that there may not be elder abuse in this case. This case focuses on a property purchase that happened almost 20 years before the court hearing. The details of the purchase were not written down and the only evidence before the court is what the parties involved say happened. Because of the lack of evidence, the case didn't even come down to who was more believable. It was determined by the presumption of advancement, which ultimately resulted in the father losing the case. I wanted to do this case because the way the presumption of advancement applies to one transaction and not another demonstrates how much the presumption disadvantages parents. I'll go into it in a little bit more detail later. But before I get into that, let me give you the background of this case. Apologies if I mispronounce any of these names. I looked up the correct pronunciation on the internet. There's actually a pronounced names website, so I'm going to do my best. The father in this case is Mahindra, the mother is Bhisma, the son is Manoj, and the daughter-in-law is Lata. Mahindra was born in Fiji in 1928, and he spent some years in Australia studying and working. In 1964, Mahindra and his wife Bijma had a son, Manoj, who was born in Sydney. Later, when Manoj was 18 years old, he moved to Australia permanently. In 1985, a house was purchased in Belmore in the name of Manoj. The purchase price was $60,000. Mahindra contributed $16,000 to the purchase price, and Manoj got a bank mortgage for the balance of $44,000. Sometime after purchasing the Belmore house, Manoj married Lata. Eventually, the Belmore property was sold, and in late 1988, a new house was purchased in St. Mary's. This time, Manoj and his father Mahindra were listed as joint owners of the house. The proceeds from the sale of the Belmore property were used to buy the St. Mary's house, but they also used a loan that was taken out by Manoj and his wife Lata. When the St. Mary's property was sold, the proceeds were used to purchase a property in Mount Druitt in January 1990, which was also purchased in the names of Manoj and his father Mahindra, in equal shares. Manoj and Lata paid the mortgage on the property. In 1997, the parties saw a justice of the peace and a transfer form was prepared for Mahindra to transfer his half-interest in the Mount Druitt home to Lata. It was signed by Mahindra and Lata before the JP, but wasn't dated. Where you enter how much money you were getting for the transfer, Mahindra had written, in natural love and affection, basically stating that Lata doesn't have to pay him any money, she can just pay him in love and affection. The JP who helped with the form asked Mahindra if he was sure, and he said, I know what I am doing, I am happy to give away my title as a gift in love. But the document didn't name the property and was never registered. 
In December of that year, a second transfer form was prepared, this time with the assistance of a licensed conveyancer. The transfer form named the Mount Druitt property and stated that Manoj and Mahindra were transferring the property to Manoj and Lata. It looks like Manoj is just transferring his half share to himself, which is very weird, but there is a reason the form is completed like that. It's just not worth getting into now, except to say that Manoj and Mahindra were transferring to Manoj and Lata. So just know that it wasn't a mistake and it has the effect that Manoj keeps his half share in the house and Mahindra transfers his half share to Lata. This time the payment for the transfer was identified to be 92500 but no money was paid to Mahindra. The transfer was signed and registered, so now the Mandrua property is held by Manoj and Lata equally. Years later, in 2002, the Mandrua property was sold. There was some kind of family breakdown and annoyingly the court doesn't go into what happened. It may have something to do with Mahindra and Bijma taking the grandchildren to Fiji for a holiday against Lata's wishes, but it, that is barely mentioned in the court report. Regardless of what exactly happened, in 2002 when Manoj and Lata were in the process of selling the house, Mahindra put a caveat on the house preventing the sale. What is a caveat? So a caveat is a document that is registered on the title to land and it claims an interest in the property. So long as the caveat remains on the title, the property cannot be sold and transferred without the permission of the person who lodged the caveat. So it can significantly delay the sale of a property. This prevented the sale being completed until Mahindra removed the caveat. He only agreed to remove his caveat on the condition that the proceeds of the sale be put into a bank account and not touched until the court determined whether Mahindra was entitled to any of the proceeds. Then Mahindra made his application to the court, arguing that he was entitled to some of the proceeds. His argument was that he had contributed $16,000 to the purchase of the first house, the one back in Belmore. And even though his name wasn't on the property, he had an interest in it. So when the first house was sold and the second bought with the sale proceeds, Mahindra argued that he gained an interest in the second house. And then again, when the second house was sold and the proceeds used to buy the third house, he argued that his interest in the second house carried over with the sale proceeds and gave him an interest in the third house. And by interest, I mean a right to some of the proceeds of the sale. Court hearing. When the matter came before the court, the details around the purchase of the first house in Belmore were critical to the outcome. The parties had different versions of how this purchase went down. Mahindra and Bijma stated that they found the Belmore property and decided to buy it. The intention was that the property would be a family home, that Manoj would live there and that Mahindra and Bijma would also live there when they visited and eventually when they moved to Australia. Because they couldn't pay the mortgage, the property would be in Manoj's name and he would pay the mortgage. Manoj, however, said that the $16,000 was a gift. That his parents said something like, we've provided for your sister and now we give you this money to use as you wish. Manoj said he was the one who found the Belmore property and decided to buy it as a home for himself and his future wife. The presumption of advancement. We've spoken of the presumption of advancement before in other cases that I've done in the video YouTube channel of Age Abuse and Justice. 
and the court found that it applied to this property purchase as well. So we're going to recap on what this is. It starts with something called a presumption of resulting trust. And what that looks like is Mark and Tim buy a house together. Their names are on the title deed as the owners 50% each in the house. But Mark paid all of the deposit and the purchase price. Tim has paid nothing towards the house. The presumption of a resulting trust is that even though Mark and Tim are registered as equal owners, we can presume that Mark doesn't intend to give Tim 50% of the house for nothing and that Tim is merely holding the 50% in his name, but that it is in effect Mark's property. However, if Mark and Tim are fiancés or spouses, or if Mark is Tim's father, the presumption of advancement implies instead this presumption states that Mark intended to give Tim 50% in the property. The law just assumes that any time a person transfers money or property to their fiancé, their spouse or their child, well they meant it to be a gift. The presumption of resulting trust and the presumption of advancement are not set in stone however. You can rebut them by proving that you had other intentions. So in the in case of the presumption of advancement, you need to prove that at the time of the transaction, you didn't intend for it to be a gift and hard cheese if you can't prove that. In this case, there was no documentary evidence of what the parties intended at the time of purchasing the Belmore property. And the way the presumption works is that Mahindra's contribution is a gift unless he can prove that he didn't mean it to be a gift. Unfortunately, as usual when dealing with family members, they didn't get anything in writing about what their intentions were. So Mahindra was unable to provide the evidence he needed. Because of this, Manoj was found to be the sole owner of the Belmore property and entitled to all the proceeds from the sale of the house. That determination affected the next property purchase because when the second house was bought using the sale proceeds from the Belmore house, those proceeds all belonged to Manoj, which meant Manoj paid for the second house without any contribution from his father. Now you may remember that Mahindra's name was on the title of the second and the third house. And you may be thinking that this gives Mahindra some rights. Unfortunately, you would be wrong. The presumption of advancement doesn't work in reverse. If a parent puts their child's name on the property, it is a gift. If a child puts a parent's name on the property, as was done here, the presumption of advancement does not apply. Instead, the presumption of a resulting trust does, which states that even though Mahindra's name is on the property, the money came from his son, therefore the property belongs to his son. The same applied when the second house was sold and the third purchased with the proceeds. It belonged to Manoj, even though Mahindra's name was on the title. Manoj and Lata told the court that they didn't know how Mahindra's name came to be on the title for the St. Mary's house or the Mount Druid house after that. I find this very hard to believe. It feels like at some point the conveyancer would need to be instructed to put Manoj and Mahindra on the transfer as joint owners. I can't see how they couldn't have known about it and consented to it, but the court doesn't really question this. The court said that because Mahindra didn't have an interest in any of the properties, they didn't really need to consider the transfer documents Mahindra had signed in 1997. But to cover their bases, they did say that the first transfer form did not operate as a transfer because, among other things, it didn't name the property. The second transfer, which stated that the transfer payment of 92500 could have given Mahindra an interest in the property because he didn't receive that payment, even though it was noted on the transfer form. 
However, the parties agreed that there was no intentions for the monies to be paid, and the court found that a transfer form with no money consideration stated cannot have a different effect than a form where money is stated, but in reality is not intended to be paid. Thus they found that Mahindra had the intention to gift his interest to Lata, despite the clause including a monetary amount, and so the result is that he did gift her any interest he may have had. The court therefore rejected Mahindra's argument that he had an interest in the Mount Druitt property. The Backup Application Mahindra had a second argument up his sleeve in case his first one failed. He argued that he was entitled to a share of the sale proceeds because he had made financial and non-financial contributions to the household. Section 14 and 20 of the Property Relationships Act applies where there is a close personal relationship between two adults, whether family or not, who are living together, providing domestic support and care to each other. Where there is that situation, the court can make an order that one of the adults in the close personal relationship is entitled to an interest in the property, even when they are not on title. So this was Mahindra's backup argument. Unfortunately, it too was a dud. The court found that Mahindra had made a one-off payment to his son to allow his son to set up a home for himself, and this, this payment had nothing to do with any domestic relationship between father and son. Mahindra said that he had paid some of his earnings to the household. Monoj and Lata say that he did not. The court ruled that any contributions Mahindra made were very few indeed, and that his case was very weak. The backup argument failed, and Mahindra's application was dismissed with cost. Cost. I can't end this case without mentioning what happened with the cost. Mahindra lost the case, so normally he would have to pay his own legal fees, as well as a portion of his son's legal fees. The most common type of cost order made by court is referred to as cost on the ordinary basis, or party-party cost, which would mean that Mahindra, as the losing party, would have to pay about 75% of the legal fees incurred by the successful party, being Manoj. You can also seek indemnity cost, which punished the unsuccessful party more by making him pay all of the winning side's legal fees. The court may make an order for indemnity cost where one party has proceeded with court action even though they had no real chance of success, or where a party has deliberately drawn out the proceedings. They may also be ordered against a party which refused to accept a reasonable offer to settle made by the other side. Basically, if you got an offer before the court hearing, and that offer was better than what the court ends up awarding you, then you have wasted the court's time and may be required to pay indemnity cost. Manoj applied to the court to have an indemnity cost order made on the basis that Mahindra had refused two offers he had made to settle the matter before the court hearing. And because Mahindra ended up getting nothing in court, he would have been better off accepting one of those offers and should have to pay indemnity costs because he didn't. The first offer to settle was made by Manoj's solicitor in a letter dated 21st of February 2003. There was actually a fax to Mahindra's solicitor on the 24th of February. The letter offered to pay Mahindra $40,000 to settle the matter for good and gave him until the 25th of February to accept. That gave him only one day to decide whether to accept or not. 
That doesn't just mean he only had one day to make up his mind and tell them. He would also need to prepare and execute the form for withdrawing the caveat in that time in order to accept the offer. Mahindra's solicitor called them out on this, responding that the deadline was a little optimistic exclamation mark. They also noted that a month prior they had requested copies of some of the document evidence so that they could advise their client on the strength of his case. And Manoj's solicitors still hadn't provided those documents. So during this cost hearing, Mahindra argued that refusing that first offer was only reasonable, given that he only was given one day in which to accept, and that they still hadn't provided him with information he needed to help him decide. And the court agreed with this and said rejecting that first offer wasn't unreasonable. In July 2003, Mahindra made his own offer to settle the matter if Manoj agreed to give him one-third of the sale proceeds. This offer was refused in September, and Manoj's solicitors made the second offer. This offer was that Mahindra stop all legal proceedings, pay Manoj's legal cost, and they wouldn't hold him liable for damages. And by damages, I'm assuming they're referring to any financial loss that Manoj and Lata would have suffered because the sale of the property wasn't able to go through. The law states that an offer of compromise has to be a genuine compromise, not just a threat to induce someone to drop their claim. This proposal that Mahindra give up his claim and still pay Manoj's legal cost was not a real offer of compromise. The offer that Mahindra wouldn't be required to pay damages was worthless, as he wasn't required to pay damages anyway. So the court ruled that this second offer wasn't really an offer to compromise at all. They therefore ordered that Mahindra pay party-party cost, which meant he would have to pay about 75% of Manoj's legal fees. Still not great, but it's a small victory. episode I warned you that this case might not be elder abuse. Certainly that is the effect of the court's ruling, basically finding that Mahindra gifted his son $16,000 in 1985 and that's the end of the matter. I feel like a case of elder abuse could be made but the facts aren't enough to support it. But let's say things went down the way Mahindra said they did. He contributed $16,000 towards the purchase of a family home which his son would live in but which he and his wife would also live in. In the following years, the house changes, but Manoj continues to live there, and so did his parents. Perhaps the reason Mahindra's name was on the second and third houses was to reflect that he had contributed and had a right to live in the house. Fast forward to 2002, and the son wants to sell the house and doesn't want to live with his parents anymore. He hasn't held up his end of the bargain. His parents relied on him and trusted him, backing him up with money, and now they don't have a home. If that was how things went down, then it could be elder abuse. But that is only one interpretation of the limited information available to us, and it could also have gone down exactly as the son said, although I doubt that. There is another reason why this case might not be elder abuse, and it's because of Mahindra's age at the time the various transactions occurred. At what age do you consider a person to be an older person? The World Health Organization definition of elder abuse is to cause harm to a person 65 years or older. At the time of the first house purchase, the all-important Belmore property, the father is 57 years old. At the time of the second purchase, Mahindra was 60 years old. At the time of the third, he was 62. And at the time of signing the transfer of his shares to Lata, 
He was about 67. When the Mount Druid house sold in 2002, he was 74. So the case raises the question of when does elder abuse start? Does it only start when the older person reaches the age of 65? Like 65 birthday, ding, now it's abuse. But it was the first transaction that's set up for all the others to occur. So does that mean that because it's connected to way back then, that it doesn't count as elder abuse because of his age at the time it started? Does it only start once the older person actually becomes vulnerable? Certainly if the father had limited mental capacity to make decisions and the son took advantage of this to bring about the transaction, that would be elder abuse. But that wasn't what happened here either. There was no indication that the father's mental capacity was impaired. Could the father have been vulnerable because he loved and trusted his son? Is it elder abuse when the relationship of trust and dependence makes the parent vulnerable to exploitation? Because that can happen much earlier on, especially in family relationships. I'm sorry, but I don't have the answers to any of these questions I just put to you. I just think this case raises some really interesting questions to consider though. So I wanted to cover it even if you don't think it's an elder abuse case. At the very least, it gets you thinking about elder abuse, wondering, was there elder abuse here? At what time does it start? When is it elder abuse? Is it only when someone's 65 or is it when they're vulnerable? It gets those questions in your head and that's all I can ask for. earlier I have covered a bit about the presumption of advancement in some of my video podcasts which are available on the Legal Aid YouTube channel also under the name of Age Abuse and Justice. So if you would like to hear more about the presumption of advancement in some cases I recommend you go check it out as I said it's available on the Legal Aid YouTube channel and there will definitely be more presumption of advancement elder abuse cases in the podcast channel as well. the case of Singh versus Singh, the citation is provided in the notes. If you have any thoughts on the case or recommendation of cases for me to cover, I'd love to hear them. If anyone knows of other cases where the presumption of advancement has been applied for good, or cases like this one where it seems to have been applied for bad, please let me know. This case made me so frustrated with the presumption of advancement, so it would probably do me some good to read some cases where it's been used in a way that I would consider fair. You can email any suggestions or feedback to me at elderservice at legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. That's one word, elderservice at legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. A big thank you from the Elder Abuse Service for listening in. If you have identified or are at risk of elder abuse, you can call 1800 353 374. Or if you're on the New South Wales Central Coast, you can contact our service on 02 4324 5611.